Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. This is producer Lan Lee welcoming you to today's Blue Barrel Conversation distributed through NBN. If you want to catch all of our episodes, you can search for the Blue Barrel Podcast, that's Blue the Color, B-E-R-Y-L, or find all of our episodes on PierceSalguero.com. Now, on with the show. Welcome to the Blue Barrel a podcast for intelligent conversations about Buddhism, Asian medicine, and embodied spirituality. I'm your host, Dr. Pierce Salguero, a professor of Asian studies and health humanities at Penn State's Abington College outside of Philadelphia. Today, I sit down with Willow Blythe Baker, a writer, translator, and teacher of meditation based on Himalayan Buddhist tradition. We talk about Willa's early discovery of Buddhism with her mother, her time living as a nun, and our shared experience in graduate school at UVA. We then do a deep dive into Buddhist Tantra and the alchemical transformations of the body-mind that led to Willa's most recent book, The Wakeful Body, published by Shambhala in 2021. If you find yourself in your head too much of the time, then this conversation is for you. And if you want to hear more from experts on Buddhism and embodied spirituality and related topics, Subscribe to Blue Barrel for monthly episodes. My name is Willa Blythe Baker. I'm a teacher, I'm a translator, I'm a writer. And what I teach these days is primarily the practices of meditation that come out of the Himalayan Buddhist tradition. I'm also the co-director, along with my dear friend, Liz Monson of Natural Dharma Fellowship and its retreat center, Wonderwell Mountain Refuge. I lead retreats there and help curate the programming for that center. And I've authored a few books, one of which was a translation to English of Taranata's Lamrim, which means something like the stages of the path of practice of meditation and ethics. And currently I'm working on a translation of Jigme Lingpo's memoir. Jigme Lingpo was a yogi who lived in the 18th century. And, and this is a very personal memoir of just about one year in his life. And so I'm, I'm working on that right now. That's my project of the moment. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Um, and we'll, we'll um, get some links in the show notes to your center and to your books and so forth so listeners can can look into all of that. So let me ask you about your interest in Buddhism. Was this something that came to you early in life? Did you grow up with connections with Buddhism or, or where did that start for you? Yes, my interest in Buddhism came came pretty early in life. My my parents were Buddhist curious atheists. I, I think I would describe them something like that, Buddhist curious atheists. And when I was about seven years old, my mother tells me, I started asking her why we don't go to church. She was a scientist. 
So she said, well, we're not going to go to church, but I will take you to other things. And so we started to visit because I really had a yearning for some meaning or spirituality or community. There was something that I was looking for and she wanted to help satisfy that. So we went to some ashrams and then we went to some Dharma centers. We went to Tarthang Tulku's center in Berkeley, California, on Hillside Avenue as the Nyingma Center. And we, we had dinners there. We had Oriyoki dinners on Friday nights, followed by meditation practice. So I started in on that when I was about seven with my mother, that exploration. And then very soon after that, she she started getting interested in transcendental meditation when I was about eight, about a year later. And she wanted to learn it with me. So we went down to the Transcendental Meditation Center right on the line between Berkeley and Oakland. There was a big old house that was essentially converted into a, into a meditation center with swamis walking around in their robes. And at that time, that was what I remember. And she and I learned Transcendental Meditation together with a teacher and then we started to practice meditation together and at at that time when I was meditating was one of the most peaceful times of my day I remember just I was an introvert also just by nature and so this idea that I had an excuse to just sit quietly and look at my mind was really interesting and compelling to me and also peaceful I just remember have a lot of memories of peaceful sitting when I was a kid. Yeah, and obviously you carried that forward through your teenage and adult life. Can you tell us a little bit about how you wound up gravitating towards Himalayan Buddhism and how how that unfolded for you? Sure. My interest in Himalayan Buddhism probably rubbed off on me from my mother's interest. When I look back, she was reading books on Tibetan Buddhism, and she even helped Tarthang Toko edit one of his books. My mother had a Vajra on her desk, and I don't know, my dad had a Tonka Vajra Yogini behind his desk. My father was interested in Zen, and had and I'd done a Seishin and had been around some Zen communities a little bit, and I wouldn't say deeply, but a little bit. So somehow there was just, it was floating there in the air, but I really became interested in college when I decided to do a junior year abroad and was trying to decide between going to Japan, going to Switzerland, or doing Tibetan studies in Nepal and studying the language of Tibetan through the University of Wisconsin. And I ended up primarily going with the program in Nepal because it was about half the cost of the other two programs. And being a poor college student, I was looking at cost. And when I was over there, in Nepal for a year, living with Tibetans, living in refugee camps, I started to really get a sense of the culture, the language, the the art, and, and just fell deeply in love with the whole thing as, and with the people, with the Tibetan people who I got to know very well, who I was living with. And that became a doorway for me into the Himalayan forms of Buddhism through that experience of that tradition in its in its own indigenous context and found it very inspiring. I was very inspired by the ethic of compassion. 
I was really inspired by the art and the emphasis on form. And I had also had quite a bit of exposure by that point to Zen Buddhism back home with my father. And it was a big contrast between the Zen aesthetic and then this Tibetan aesthetic, which is very full of form and color and deities. And I loved that. There was something about the color and the form that seemed to communicate a kind of playfulness in life that I was seeking at that time, a kind of joy and exuberance, maybe. Not that calm, quiet aesthetic of Zen, but like an exuberant kind of sensual thing that was being communicated through the art. And that too really drew me to the tradition, to the religion. Hmm. So this trip to Nepal, was it the beginning of a shift into the academic study of religious studies, or did that not come until later? So I ended up majoring in cross-cultural psychology in college and and did a little bit of research in Nepal in a, in a refugee camp near Pokhara with monastic children and asking them about their sense of self. <laughs> So, so that was an example, kind of a combination between anthropology and psychology was where, was where my, major, my major ended up going. And then from there, I ended up visiting this monastery that was just about a, an hour bike ride from my, from my college. I didn't have a car. And so I, I rode my bike out to this Tibetan monastery on the Hudson River in New York. And that is where I ended up moving for the second semester of my senior year of college. And initially I was just moving there because I wanted to be closer to people that I could speak Tibetan with, because by that time I, I did know Tibetan, could speak it, and, and wanted also to study the texts in Tibetan, and that those resources weren't there at the college. So I ended up commuting from the college to the monastery, living at the monastery, commuting to college for the second semester of my senior year. And then I thought, well, I'll stay just over the summer. And then the summer just turned into the fall and the fall turned into a year and then it just kept going. And I ended up staying there for 15 years and taking the vows of a monastic and then doing a couple of long retreats. And the way that I framed it to myself at the time is, well, this is my graduate school. I'm, I'm, in, the, I'm in the monastic graduate school. And it was, a, it was a very, in some ways, a very beneficial time, one for which I'm very grateful. I learned a lot about the practice of Buddhism. I got all the traditional training that I, that I was aspiring for, wanted to, to really understand more deeply the path of training in meditation and practice. And I figured the way to understand it was to dive deep into it. And, and the culture there was monastic, so that, that I didn't take the vows so much because I was drawn to monasticism, because I really wasn't so much, but that was the culture there. People became, if they became serious about practice, then the understanding or the assumption was that they would take the vows of a nun or a monk. So I did that sort of as a product of being a, a member of that community, and then yeah, and learned my translation skills there. So I have a lot of gratitude for being there. There were also a lot of, it was a difficult time too. It was a difficult time. It was not an easy community to live in. 
it was very insular and I experienced some difficulty there, but I, but I also experienced a lot of, a lot of learning too and, and developed deep friendships. And finally, at the end of it, realized that it wasn't the life for me. It wasn't what I really wanted. It was too insular, too away from our culture and society. And at that time, by the end of my time there, I was teaching other people Buddhism and teaching meditation as a nun and feeling separate from the people that I was teaching. They would tell me about their lives, working in their lives and with their families. And I felt like they were living a life so different from my own. And I wasn't sure really that the advice that I was giving them about practice was appropriate given their, their lives being the way that they were. And so eventually I just felt it didn't feel like a fit for me to, to remain in that monastic life. What was the lineage or what was the, the type of teaching that the monastery had? It was technically <laughs> a Kagyu monastery, the Kagyu lineage of Tibetan Buddhism, but it was an Eastern Tibetan version of that, which means that the teacher who was the head of that monastery, there were really two, Kala Rinpoche and Lama Norla. So there's this, this particular informal lineage in Eastern Tibet called Kaning, which is the combination of Kagyu and Nyingma traditions. And so I, I had a, a strong dose of conning in my upbringing, so to speak, which means I, I received a lot of transmissions of both Kagyu and Nyingma practices and practiced both in three-year retreat. And also a strong dose of Shangpa lineage from Kala Rinpoche, who was a, held the Shangpa lineage, which is a lineage that comes from two women, Niguma and Sukhasiddhi, back in the 11th century. So it's an unusual lineage from that perspective. And so once you left the monastery, what did you do? Did you go straight to graduate school or was there a gap there? So after the monastery, the first thing I did was seek a job because I needed a source of income, not living under the umbrella of the monastery anymore. I had to quickly find a way to support myself. So I went into the mental health field with people in a group home. But I also was missing the texts and missing connection to the language, the Tibetan language. And then that was what drew me back into graduate school. Yeah. And so where did you go for graduate school? I went to University of Virginia, and I believe you and I were classmates, (laughs) but we didn't know it. I never met you there. (laughs) (laughs) I was primarily in East Asian studies courses, so I wasn't hanging out with the cool kids in the Tibetan studies program so much, but but I did do some courses in Buddhism, so we... Oh. We probably sat sat in the same room a couple times. <laughs> it was intense. It was great because I had I, at that point I had been in the monastery for a long time and had only really had an education from within the tradition. And of course, there's a kind of myopia there too because it's it's not looking critically at the tradition, right? The tradition itself doesn't look at itself critically generally. <laughs> it looks at itself as as a very, in a very positive light. And I really appreciated this stepping back and looking at the broader themes of Tantra and trying to define Tantra 
and and looking at it from a socio-political perspective and looking at it from a historical perspective, which I had never had the opportunity to do. I'd never had a teacher that could guide me through that kind of looking at the tradition. And I found it very eye-opening that traditions don't exist outside of an economic context, a political context, a sociological context, a patriarchal context. So being able to think about those bigger systems actually helped my practice. Then I was able to strip away or, or see how some of the tradition is, it comes out of a context and maybe the context is different here in the West. And so we can think about how do we, how do we want to practice here? Yeah, that's really interesting. I had a very similar kind of trajectory myself coming from about five years in Southeast Asia where I was training as a traditional medicine practitioner and spending also a lot of time in meditation centers and monasteries and went to UVA to enter into the academic study of Buddhism and had had a kind of a similar sort of stripping away of the mythologies that I had inherited and opening up to these more academic analytical perspectives. For me, I would say it was a little bit traumatic, though, having these very foundational concepts that I had really internalized. They had affected me quite deeply on a personal level. And then to have those exposed as being products of, like you said, economics and politics and, and social dynamics and so forth, for me, was a little bit, I don't know, it, it, it took a while for me to adjust to that kind of analysis. And I actually was quite resistant for the first couple of years I was in. I was a part-time student doing my master's degree, taking a couple courses at a time. So it took me five years to finish the master's. But by the end, I was completely committed to an academic approach and actually preferred that approach and went on to complete a PhD. But the, the first year or two, I think were pretty uncomfortable. <laughs> you characterize it as being liberating in some in, in some ways, but was it also difficult to make that transition? I think what was difficult in the in being in the academic context as a practitioner was that I sometimes felt like there's a well, there is a tension between the perspective of a practitioner, which is truth lies in in the field of your own experience. Deep truth can be found in the field of your own experience. And in academia, the framing is more like truth is found through investigation and analysis. And truth is found through leaning on the perspectives of of very intelligent people who have written very compelling books and theories we're leaning on that that knowledge. We're leaning on a historical knowledge that comes to us from the outside. And the first person truths that happen within the field of your experience don't have a lot of room. There's not a lot of room for those in, in the academic context. So I found that tension challenging because I still now, <laughs> then and now, believe that the first person subjective truths that we glean from our own experience are the most profound truths that I have ever contacted. And so that's still true now and was true then. But back then I felt like that part had to stay hidden and sequestered because if that voice started to emerge in the classroom, I felt like there wasn't space for it or it would be shut down by 
the overlay of the other truths. So that for me was was the challenge of academia. Yeah, I completely relate to that sort of tension that you're describing. Actually, I in the first episode of this podcast, I talk a little bit more detail about my own story and background, and this is one of the things that comes up in that episode. But were you able to maintain your connection with your body through your training as a graduate student? I, I found that impossible. And I found myself more and more immersed into a, a mental kind of universe and more and more disconnected from embodied practice. Yeah, I, I found that very challenging about graduate school, how heady it is, how much I felt like I was living above the neck. And yeah, I would say that initially my experience of Buddhism took me away from the body in some ways because of the, the emphasis, especially when you're early on in your curriculum of training within the Himalayan Buddhist traditions, you, you do a lot of still, silent meditation and this philosophy of mind. And this word mind was very prevalence in my experience of the Buddhist tradition early on. So that that kind of made me think that somehow becoming awakened was about mastering this thing that's from the neck up. But the more I practiced and the deeper I went in the tradition, the more I discovered that actually it's very much about the body and that that what's being talked about when the word mind is used, is something that is embodied and, and actually is, is located in the heart and radiates out from the heart. So as I practiced more, I, I began to really understand this was, this was really about the body. And so the Buddhism took me away from the body, and then I circled back around and started realizing that it's all about the body. And that's where my work ended up extending into that and then to that area where it's still where I still dwell in my practice. But yeah, in graduate school, I, I know what you mean. The disembodied is is very, very strong in that context. And I hope that changes because I actually think when we learn through the body and with the body, when we get the knowledge into the body, it's much deeper. And, and one day I can imagine academic institutions having yoga breaks or having breaks where everybody gets up and moves together and then sits down again and begins to learn. You know, I don't know what, how that would look, but it, I think it could be powerful. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. We actually just had uh, Frances Garrett on the podcast and she was talking about embodied pedagogy. And I think she's actually leading the way in uh, discovering ways of doing exactly what you just said. So very, very exciting developments there that I would, would invite people to go back and listen to. I love to hear that. Just, just the the, the phrase embodied pedagogy really makes me smile. <laughs> yeah. So I'm interested in how you said that Buddhism took you away from the body and then it brought you back. So for, for me, because, you know, and just I should say I don't have any experience practicing Tibetan Buddhism. It's the form of Buddhism I know the least about and have only encountered it through through books. But for me, starting in a Theravada practice context and then in my academic life really focusing on East Asian Mahayana Buddhism I never got the return back to the body that you're describing so for me from the very beginning in the forest tradition in Thailand meditation was about 
transcending the body. At best, the body was a vehicle in order to do the meditation work. And and even body scans in the Vipassana style were intended to move you to deeper and deeper states of concentration that are like beyond the body. Um, we I spent time in monasteries where we ate very poorly, one meal a day, lots of sugar and caffeine to get through the afternoon, very little sleep, a lot of ascetic approaches to the body. And, and I think for me, because I was practicing a couple of different styles of cultivation simultaneously, I was doing Indian style hatha yoga and I was doing Theravada style meditation and then learning traditional medicine as well. So I had sort of like a tension between the body-based practices and then this Buddhist philosophy of transcendence. And then moving into academia, the more I learned about Chinese Buddhism, the less the body <laughs> less the body is is central to that cultivation. I know that there's obviously there are Taoist practices in China that are very body centric, but in in Buddhist discourses, at least the discourses from medieval China that I was looking at, you know, the body's a loathsome, disgusting thing and you can't give in to its passions and its its desires and so forth. The whole Buddhist approach to the body has has always turned me off actually and I've really valued a lot about Buddhism in terms of the approach to mental cultivation but have always held Buddhism at an arm's length when it comes to the body and not trusted its teachings in that area and I I have to say I don't usually read dharma books i really don't pay attention to to that world at all and somehow your book landed in my kindle i think maybe the title was was what attracted me the the wakeful body and your 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 term somatic mindfulness and and so i i did flip through your book expecting to see the same kind of buddhist treatment of the body that i've seen everywhere else but i think your book was actually to me it was revolutionary it takes the body first, right? Buddhism through the body. And so I'm, I'm so curious about that. I have so many questions that I want to ask you about. And, and I guess the, the first place that I would want to start is, um, is this system that you talk about in the book, is this the way that Buddhism is presented in the Himalayan traditions that, you're, that you have been a part of, or is this your own kind of synthesis, emphasizing your, your own realizations and your own approaches to cultivation? This book is a combination of the two things, those two things. It is there in this branch of the tradition that has this kind of positive valence on the body, even a elevation of the body as this sacred vessel. This branch is the tantric strains or lines of Buddhism. And there's not one branch, right? There's many branches of that. But there was a point in Buddhist history in India, maybe around the 7th century, 8th century, when Kashmiri Shaivism and Shaivism in general and Buddhism started having some kind of a conversation. What emerged were these texts called the Tantras, the Buddhist Tantras that had this Buddhist philosophical perspective mixed with these techniques that are about transforming the body in an alchemical way into an enlightened body. Maybe we should say the body-mind into an enlightened body-mind. Using these techniques of visualization, yoga, pranayama, and working with the subtle energies of the body to reconfigure their movement for a more wakeful outcome. 
And that had to do with a kind of, yeah, reframing of the body as the sacred vessel. So there's a body positive valence in those Buddhist tantras. And there was a time when I was writing my dissertation and I was scanning through lots and lots of texts and started scanning through these Buddhist tantras, looking for certain phrases that is part of my dissertation research. And one thing that I just noticed, I mean, I just noticed this just by scanning the pages, was how often these words ku and lu, which in Tibetan are enlightened body and ordinary body. I mean, the pages were just scattered with the word body. It was all over the place. And I was like, wow, that would be really interesting just to go through a few Buddhist tantras and count the number of times the word ku, enlightened body, is, is there. And then compare that, say, to an early Buddhist text or something. And how often does the word body actually appear in the text? So anyway, that's what I mean by the strain of Buddhism. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, like I said earlier, this is the form of Buddhism I know the least about, so this may be my own kind of misunderstanding. But it seems to me that within the tantric forms of Buddhism that I'm aware of, these kinds of practices that we're talking about right now are saved for the end. There's completion practices and there's a whole long career of preliminary practices that need to take place before doing this kind of work on the body that has to do more with awareness or concentration or other kinds of mental mental qualities. And I think usually, correct me if I'm wrong, that you actually have to have had some kind of taste of true nature or the, I don't know what the right term is in in the tradition that you're a part of, but you have to have had some kind of taste of realization in order to even think about starting these kinds of practices. And in your book, it's a book that is accessible enough that you could pick it up and start without any background, start practicing in this way. That seems to me to be very novel, what you're doing in that book. Am, am, I, am I wrong about that? Or is that is that something that's more common than I'm thinking? Yeah. So when, when I said both, like both, it's true that it's in the tradition. And it's also true that when I wrote the book, I wanted to write the book for how I wish I had been introduced to meditation and to Buddhism. And I wish those body practices and the emphasis on this idea of a wakeful body had been the basis of what I learned, not something that, that I had to glean later. So I'm taking creative license in this book to present what has been wakeful for me. You know, that, that's, that's really where my own experience is coming through in the book. What has kept my practice juicy and joyful and alive, how do I now teach? Too, I was hoping this book could be a teaching companion for me. So some of it was also wanting to record and put down in writing what it is that I was doing with my students on retreat and hoping that it would find the people out there that need that approach and that want that approach and, and that they, if they're in a, you know, in say a Vipassana tradition or if they're in a Zen tradition, it would give them permission to not, not to change their tradition, but permission to, to really find these practices in their own body and supplement whatever it is that they're doing in the tradition in which they're practicing. And it does sound like that's, it has reached those people. I've, I've been hearing from those people saying, thank you for giving me permission to, to really 
respect and love my body on this path and and not denigrate it and see it just as this 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 thing to be transcended and and, and there and there is there is this tension within the buddhist tradition between transcendence of the physical and the physical is the wakeful place that, that that tension exists even within the the Himalayan traditions because those traditions inherited all the old texts from the early Buddhist tradition. So and and I also hope that that students of Buddhism can begin to see that they get to curate their own practice. They get to put together their own practice that's enlightening for them. I think I think we have this this notion when we're first training on a path that we have to conform and we have to accept everything that the teacher says or everything that our tradition tells us to do. And actually, we we need to be smarter than that, I think, as students of Dharma or yoga, whatever tradition we're in that we're working with, or academia even, right? Curate the directions that that really make sense for for us because we're so unique. Each one of us is unique. Yeah, I really love what you said about that you wrote this book, like the way you wished you had encountered Buddhism from the beginning. And, and for me, I, I feel like maybe my relationship with Buddhism may have turned out differently if I had read this book first instead of all of the transcendence-oriented material that I read initially as well. Um, and, I, and I think that the message that you're putting out there about the importance of respecting and loving your body as part of your spiritual practice is very much needed these days. I think there's quite a bit of unhealthy pathological detest for bodies, and, and I think an important shift in the conversation could take place by people reading this book. And so what was the process like of discovering this system that you present in the book and then developing it for your students and for the world at large? I would say that that it took about 10 years of just working with my own practice and then working with students in retreat practice or in, in teaching them meditation. It became gradually clear to to me that many students are really up in the head in their practice, very caught in thinking about their practice, but not actually in it. And then also noticing that when I really include the body in my practice and when I integrate yoga into my practice, not just sitting, but also movement and mindful movement, deep engagement with the body, with with a mindful frame. I'm at my happiest. I mean, I can, it makes me happy to practice. And I think that that was a part of my motivation is also noticing how practice can become stale. It became stale for me in, in the monastic setting. Eventually it became quite ritualized and I was doing my practice by rote I I had my prayers memorized and it was not, not juicy, maybe, maybe comfortable from the perspective of routine, but not, not enlightening, not awakening, not exciting. And, but when I include the, include the body in my practice, I'm, I never know what's going to happen. And also it, it keeps me really in the present moment. And I think that if, if, if there's any place to be, if there's any place this tradition is, is pointing, there's a direction this tradition is pointing, it's to the power of the present moment and to the power of full engagement with the richness of your experience in the now. And the body really gets me there. So 
that also, right, was in the background motivating the writing. And when I, when I would sit down to write, it actually turned out to be difficult to write this book because I would sit down and I would know I want to share how rich it is to be in the body in a practice. But then I quickly discovered when I sat down to actually write a lot about this, that what I was wanting to do was write something that is non-conceptual, right? So then how do you put into words something that is non-conceptual? The body's knowledge, the body's way of being is beyond language. And, And in that way, it's similar to the what the sages described an awakening to be, beyond thought, beyond word, beyond expression, right? Nasam Jume Shera Padojin in Tibetan Prajnaparamita is that which is beyond all of those things, perfect wisdom. The body is also, right, our embodied experience, a moment of sensory experience. As soon as you try to write it down, it becomes two-dimensional, right? It's not the same thing as the three-dimensional experience. So I had to get over that that limitation or, or being intimidated by that limitation in order to write the book. I had to not, I was just like, I know there's a way, there's a way <laughs> to do this. Yeah. And, and I think you, you found the way because somehow you turned this into a very well-organized six-step method in order to help people to tap into that. So I I think maybe now would be a good time to maybe go through those six steps or processes just so people know what the actual techniques that we're talking about consist of. Yeah. So I know you've given other podcasts where you go into much more in-depth in these teachings, but we can maybe approach this as sort of a quick overview, particularly for our audience. How would you recommend that somebody like myself who spends the majority of my work day on email and in Zoom meetings and teaching and reading and writing, you know, immersed in this world of words, language, thought, etc. Maybe you can give us a quick run through of the ground method for those of us who spend a lot of time in our minds. <laughs> so this mnemonic is my attempt to capture in six steps how to move from the disembodied state to a state of feeling deeply embodied, G-R-O-U-N-D. That stands for ground first, second, relax, third, open, fourth, untangle, fifth, nurture, and sixth, dissolve. It's also my attempt to capture how to connect to the layers of embodiment that each one of us experiences. And those layers were layers that I was exposed to in the my training on, in this tantric path of Buddhism. So in that path of Buddhism, the body is understood not to be just this single thing, a single unit. In that tradition, body is seen as a layered entity, that there is the physical body, And then another layer of the body is the energy body or the subtle body. 
Another layer of embodiment is consciousness or awareness. And then there's also a fourth layer that is thrown into that understanding, which is the integration of those three layers that although we separate them, physical, energetic, and consciousness, they're actually completely integrated, but we separate them out for the purposes or the tradition separates them out for the purposes of training and for the purposes of understanding. And that particular way of understanding body, not as a single unit, but as a layered entity that we can explore, just like we might go on a pilgrimage. We can go on a pilgrimage through our own body and we need ways of engaging the body. So this idea of the body as a layered entity gives us ways of exploring. Okay, so now I'm going to explore my physical body. How does my physical body feel? Even asking questions like that in our practice begin to move us from the sort of realm of ideas and thinking and the swirling thoughts down into, oh, my knee is hurting. Oh, my ankle is hurting. Or my body feels very easeful. Or my body feels sluggish. And then from there, we begin to see where are we impeded? Where are we struggling? And where are we bright? And where are we relaxed? And what does relaxation even feel like? So, so we, it gives us a, a, a framework with which to explore the body. So that's basically what's going on with G-R-O-U-N-D. And and the whole book is structured around that mnemonic. I do the whole mnemonic as one meditation session myself. That's how I use it. Ground, come down, feel the body's groundedness, its solidity, its stability. Relax, feel where where am I holding tension in the body. Open. Feel this sense of opening out of the senses, of widening. Okay, now I'm going beyond just the physical body into the sense of my energy and also extending into the senses. Untangle what is the reality of what's complicating this present moment. For example, I'm feeling depressed or I'm ruminating about my relative and they're struggling and how am I going to help them, right? So the realities and on how do we disengage or how do we relax within those realities that's untangle and then nurture nurture has to do with awareness coming into the sense that there is a watcher of this experience and then beginning to nurture the witness and beginning to give a place a seat for a non-reactive witness to our experience that's nurture And then dissolve has to do with dissolving the sense of this division between body-mind and letting those two things come together as one experience. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for walking us through that. So one thing I've noticed is that for myself, with a technique like what you're talking about, coming down into the body, being really present, both physically, also energetically, and also coming out of the swirl of thoughts, seems to me to be incompatible with a lot of the kinds of work that I need to do in my job. And I will often find myself kind of like, I guess, oscillating between being present and embodied and then sort of like going off into intellectual space or into mental space and then coming back into the body and sort of oscillating between the two. I think I I have picked up the impression that some traditions would like you to really stay in the embodied 
present awareness, whereas other traditions are fine with the oscillation. Let go and relax and just let your awareness do what it does. And do you advocate, you know, using ground to come into the body and come into presence and then stay there while we're doing our intellectual work? I think what you're asking is very, to me, it feels very familiar, Mm -hmm. very familiar, this oscillation. And I don't know about others, but I experience that oscillation as the sort of natural flow of how it just is. And I don't know that we can maintain a state of embodied present moment mindfulness to its fullest extent while we're engaged in an intense intellectual pursuit. And and the other thing is, is that it's perfectly okay. I mean, that's my perspective on it, that we actually, I don't know, I need that oscillation. I, I don't mind it. And, and in fact, I find it very joyful at times to be completely carried away in the world of ideas or even completely carried away by a movie, right? Or completely carried away by going to the theater, right? There are these different ways that we can get completely absorbed with our attention and with our mind. And there's a kind of a a letting go of self that happens in that too, a kind of full dive engagement and then coming back at a later time and being present in the body and opening up to the space within and into the 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 power of the present moment, if you will, as as a practice that we engage with frequently, maybe many times a day, but but to stay there in one particular way, I think is I think it's challenging. I do think that rhetorically, there's 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 language within the tradition about remaining at all times in the in the wakeful field of present moment, clear light awareness as a possibility for Buddhahood, right? Or as a description of Buddhahood. But in this in this human life, my my experience is more like that oscillation that you're describing. <laughs> yeah. And is is that maybe a difference between tantric forms of Buddhism and other forms of Buddhism? It seems to me that, that there are forms of Buddhism that that are very much interested in, in having you cultivate a certain amount of control of your awareness in order to really constrain it to this present moment awareness being your experience 100% of the time. Whereas, you know, at least the non-Buddhist forms of Tantra that I know about are much more comfortable with with just allowing the Shakti to do its thing, right? The creative flow of the universe doing its thing, and it's not a problem. And I don't know if that's maybe behind the Buddhist Tantric approaches as well, this embrace of the creativity and dynamism of the, of the universe. Yes, I would say that the way that I understand practice, maybe through the lens that I've been exposed to it, which is very much a the tantric lens and the and the Dzogchen lens and the Mahamudra lens, which are terms Mahamudra and Dzogchen for more formless meditation within the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. From those perspectives on practice, your awareness is already awake it's primordially there and so any attempt at control will get you away from the wakefulness that actually the practice is about giving up of control 
So that's a very different approach to meditation than some traditions take. It's a kind of emphasis on effortlessness and on letting go into what is already present. So from that perspective, no matter what you do, watching a movie, engaged in your email, (laughs) doing your admin, or doing your small tasks, your wakefulness hasn't gone anywhere. It's still there. It's just that we're a little less connected to it. And so from that's a particular perspective on what it means to awaken is to surrender fully to this wakefulness that is already present, not to create something anew and not to control the conditions to make that happen because it's already there. It's a different perspective on practice than controlling. So as far as like living living an academic life of reading and writing and thinking, we're going to be well served to have a technique like you're describing in your book or another technique that we're able to drop down into our bodies, out of our heads, into our bodies periodically throughout throughout the day just to be able to sort of come back and recharge or come back and relax in this more grounded state. I feel like your, your technique is helpful in, in that regard. Maybe you have to practice it a little while in order to be able to do it quickly, but it does seem to be able to drop you down pretty quickly out of the world of thought into into your body. In my new line of research, I'm looking at the kinds of energy problems and other kinds of health-related issues, as well as psychological troubles that people can get into through their spiritual practice and particularly through the intensive practice of meditation. And I feel like the majority of what I've been encountering in that line of research is people having experiences where something shifts profoundly in their awareness or in their mental state that provokes some kind of energetic releases or problems in the body that can flare up very intensely and very surprisingly and carry people off into things like hallucinations and, and illnesses and even psychosis. And, and I feel like what you're talking about here, this method of of being able to descend down into your body and find the ground, find the groundedness and also open up and untangle the energetic body might be part of the solution for these kinds of energy problems, or at least if somebody was regularly doing this, that they perhaps would have a, a, a smoother experience when, when they do have these kind of profound awakening experiences. So I'm wondering, you know, if this whole, if this whole topic is something that you've encountered in your teaching, in your own practice, or just more, more generally, what do you think about energy imbalances and so forth that can come up during meditation and, and the role of grounding to smooth those out? Mm. Yeah, adverse meditation experiences are are a phenomenon that I have seen, encountered up close, and I don't know that I have had those myself exactly in the way or to the intensity that I've I've certainly seen them happening with others, and I think that over the years my <laughs> My conclusion is that meditation should never be seen as the panacea for everyone, first of all. It's not the, maybe not the practice for everyone at every time. It's something that is appropriate for some people at the right time. 
And so just being aware of that is important. And then also that, that meditation alone for human evolution isn't enough. We need other methods of attention and self-care, including looking into our own history and we could use we could use meditation as a kind of island away of away from trouble. What we're actually getting away from is other parts of ourself that we don't really want to deal with or encounter and, and other maybe parts of our history that we want to leave behind. But the truth is that when we go into a practice of meditation, nothing gets left behind. All of those things come with us. And so we do need practices that dig into that history, that whatever the history is that we're carrying, we may be carrying a history of trauma. Most of us have a history of trauma, actually. We experience trauma by being human, just by the fact that we're human and we encounter suffering, we encounter loss. And so we're carrying those losses in our body, in our subtle body, we're carrying them in our nervous system. And we need ways to address those. And sometimes that includes a psychotherapy experience as as a supplement to our practice or ways of exploring and releasing some of the energy that we're carrying around those traumas too. So I would just say that that what we need is a trauma-informed dharma in general and a trauma-informed meditation teaching. And that, I think that starts off with training individuals to be intimate with their body and to be attentive to what's there, what's present. Those energy experiences begin with something, you, may, you said something off in the mind, that's, that's true. But as soon as anything goes off in the mind, it's also going off in our nervous system. And so someone who's been trained to pay attention to that will notice something is really shifting and I need to reach out for guidance. I need to see what's going on here. I've also heard that those kinds of experiences tend to happen in intensive retreat environments. So I think part of the the solution is not so much which practices are we teaching, although that is a piece of it. It's also what context are the practices being taught? And is it appropriate for someone to be in a long, silent retreat? And, and it's certainly not appropriate, I would say, to have retreats where if those things arise, they're just ignored or the person is told, just keep powering through. Though that, that is never the answer <laughs> to those problems when they arise. And, and I do think, yeah, attention to the body, training to be attentive to what's happening in the body is helpful for self-monitoring if one's practice is, is, is going awry. And practices of grounding, especially those practices that bring us down to the base of the body, help take us out of this idea that we're in some sort of transcendent state and how we're perceiving reality becomes less of, a, of the, where the attention is going and more to, can I feel my feet on the ground? Can I feel my seat on this ground? I'm here now. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for for saying that. So we we are going to be doing actually a whole season of this podcast on adverse 
side effects of meditation coming up. So this is a nice preview of the kinds of things we're going to talk about. Love to listen to that. Yeah, there's a lot of wisdom within Asian medicine and meditation systems that acknowledge these kinds of problems and, and that both have advice on how to avoid them and also how to how to treat these energy problems when they arise. So, so is approaching meditation from the very beginning through this embodied kind of approach that you talk about in the book, is that, is that safer in the long run for practitioners? Mm. I, I mean, I, I don't want to make any claims. <laughs> safer, not safer. It's hard to make a claim about that. But I personally feel it is a more grounded path to start with attention to the body, loving attention to the body, curious attention to the body, and, and maybe uh, I'm providing a correction to a tradition that I feel has been too focused on, let's, let's look at the mind, let's examine the mind. Not to say that we don't need to do that. It's a, it's a gift of the meditation tradition in general that we're invited to look deeply into our own awareness. That is a deep, important, profound gift. But what is meant by that? What does it mean to do that? I think isn't something that is about looking at it's something disembodied. It's about looking into the entire field of the body-mind. And, and so as a corrective, I've offered this real pointed attention to the body because it's been left out of the equation so often. Yeah, well, well, this has been just such an interesting conversation. I really appreciate your time that you spent with us. I'm wondering if there's anything that we haven't talked about that we should have. Is there anything that you'd like to add before we close up? Mm, yeah, just my gratitude, Pierce, for you having me on the show. Oh, my pleasure. And, and how much I appreciate the space that you've opened up for a conversation between academia and, and practice within Asian traditions. I think that, that that space where both rigorous academic perspective can be in conversation with this subjective first person kind of voice of meditation, those spaces are precious and really useful. And there's a kind of a, a learning that we can all get from being in them. So thank you for, for providing that. Yeah, well, that's exactly what we're trying to do here. So. Thanks for being a part of this project. No, it's my, my, my pleasure to do it. Yeah.